0: I believe that we still have on for next for Friday um, Stephen Schwartzman. He said he would do it. I, I, I always worry about people who have such important businesses because some big deal may become in crisis <laughs> or something. Uh, people like that have trouble sometimes adhering to a, a schedule. But uh, as far as I know, we're getting him. So I, I hope that you will all be able to come. Uh, This Friday, here at the usual time. If there's any problem with his uh, appearing, uh, I will uh, email you. Uh, So, as you know, uh, Stephen Schwartzman is a graduate of Yale College uh, and he's one of the great uh, stories of our century. Uh, He created, uh, it's just about the biggest private equity firm uh, from scratch in 1985. Uh, And uh, I guess they just went public, and they have a huge market cap. They're comparable to one of the biggest old-line investment banks in New York. But he just—he and Peter Peterson just created it. Uh, So I think it'll be very interesting to uh, to hear him. Uh, And again, uh, you'll have a chance to question him about uh, what he's done. I put on the reading list the New Yorker article that's out right now. Well, actually, it was I guess it was out a week, a couple of weeks ago, but it's up on our uh, syllabus. Uh, but I think I might want to take it down before he comes. <laughs> I, I'm going to turn. I'm going to th- reflect on this uh, because he may not be pleased with the article. It's 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 a very uh, hard-hitting critical uh, article. Uh, well, you know he. He had to be a, a tough businessman to arrive where he is. Um, so, uh, the, the New Yorker article talks about the price of his uh, condo or co op in New York, which uh, sets some record. And so, they tell things like that. I was just yesterday in London, um, and uh, people like to gossip about things like that. that the limo driver driving me to the airport point was pointing out the scenes in London. He said, You know that building? Some uh, Arab sheik just paid a hundred million pounds for that, apart- that penthouse apartment in that building, uh, and the uh, the same sheik is ordering an Airbus for his one of these big Airbus airplanes for his personal plane, and he's having it plated with gold leaf. <laughs> Did you hear this story? Did anyone? Is this true? This is what a limo driver told me yesterday. He said it's going to cost him five hundred million pounds or something like that. Uh, to do this, uh, but these are these are gossip. The, the real substance uh, is what the man does or woman does uh, for the world, and so I gleaned here a list of some of the charities. Uh, Stephen Schwartzman is a major philanthropist, uh, and he set up something called the Blackstone Foundation uh, from the Blackstone Group, and he's a major donor or. Uh, Collaborator with uh, the Frick Collection, the Whitney Museum, Phoenix House, the Red Cross, the Inner City Scholarship Fund, New York City Outward Bound, and the Asia Society. So I think that's the real thing we should talk about, not the size of his penthouse. And so uh, I might try to find a more um, even handed account and put that up on the website. Um, but incidentally, there's sort of a resemblance between him and, and David Swenson in the sense. Well, first of all, they're both phenomenally successful, but they both are, are emphasizing alternative investments. They're they're not straight laced, uh, uh, old fashioned. They're they're willing to take experiments. So, uh, so I think he should be uh, very interesting. Uh, anyway, that's that's Friday at, at nine. Now. Uh, I want to talk about the stock market today, and I thought uh, uh, I will keep it more or less basic because I think uh, I want to emphasize basic concept. A lot I'm going to talk about is Modigliani Miller or Modigliani Miller, but I'm not going to get too deep into it. Maybe in your review sections, you can get more uh, technical. I'm going to just talk about it in a very intuitive, uh, direct terms. Uh, so. Uh, What are stocks? Okay. Uh, I think the idea of a a stock must have been invented independently at many times in history. Uh, The word shares is is the fundamental word. So suppose you are starting a business with somebody. Uh, It could be at any time in history. Uh, You know, Babylonia or something. This must have (coughs) happened. Okay? And so, you know, a group of people start a business and they say, let's divide up the, uh, the proceeds. That's very direct, isn't it? If we're all working together, uh, we divide up the proceeds and so that means we're allocating shares. Now, I don't know how far back it goes, but it must be that in ancient times some people would say, all right, you're going to be doing more work or you're contributing more to this enterprise, we'll give you a bigger share of, of the profits. Right? That's, that's so basic, it must have happened a million times. And that's that's the basic idea, of uh, of uh, of the stock market. All it is is that we've got it much more um, high high flown and much more legalized than. So the uh, the basic idea is that you have to have shares in something, <laughs> okay, uh, a, a business, uh, and the idea goes back clearly to ancient Rome, that let's consider a business. As sort of a person who is owned, like a slave who is owned by other people, uh, and in the, in law the word "person" doesn't mean what you think it means. Per, there's, there's a natu- in law a natural person is you and I, uh, people, real <laughs> flesh and blood, blood individuals are called natural persons. But when we say "person," it also that's more general. It also includes corporation. Uh, and you know the word corporation comes from the Latin corpus, meaning body. So it's an embodiment. We create an entity that, in in the eyes of the law, is like an individual. It may be owned by other individuals, but it is uh, has its own rights and responsibilities as if it were a person. So uh, in ancient Rome, corporations were called publicani. That's Latin. Uh, the publicani were. Um, we're companies like we have today, and um, according to the research of Orica Malmondier at Stanford, uh, she thinks that uh, the stock market in ancient Rome was done on the street uh, in the Roman Forum, and she can tell you where. So you, when you go to Rome, you can you can walk and see there what's left of their stock market, but it never flourished really until uh, uh, relatively modern times. Um, so the idea of course, is that we have a legal entity, a corporation that issues shares that are either given to people or purchased by people. Uh, and the idea is that shares represent contributions. you give shares to someone who is contributing to the enterprise okay Now uh, you can uh, when you set up a corporation, there's different kinds of <coughs> Relationships that people might have to the corporation. One of them is as a shareholder, and the shareholder gets a share, is entitled to a share of the profits. But there's also employees who get wages, uh, and that's very different. Uh, they get a, 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 they have a labor contract that specifies how much they will get. Uh, and then you'll have debtors and uh, other people with other relationships. But the fundamental one is the shareholder, right? Because the shareholder. Owns the corporation, uh, and uh, uh, so uh, as it's evolved in modern times, the corporation has a charter uh, or a bylaws. When you create a corporation, you write up a, a contract which specifies the rules of the corporation. It's like a constitution for the corporation, uh, and also the law of the state in which the Corporation is chartered, also puts restrictions on what can be in the bylaws. Uh, notably, it's typically required that uh, it's one share, one vote, uh, and that uh, there's a, there, it will be also required that there be an annual meeting at least once a year, a shareholder meeting, um, and then the shareholders can vote on relevant issues. And one of the most important issues then is to elect a board of directors. And the state law probably requires that a corporation have a board of directors, but it's also something that can be defined at the time that you create the corporation in the bylaws. But it's not something you can do just whatever you want. State law uh, has requirements for the board of directors. Okay? And so. uh, but anyway, th- I'm just going to talk in very basic terms. So the, the usual structure <coughs> is one shareholder, one vote. At the board of at the annual meeting, the shareholders can come and elect a board, uh, and the board then uh, is in charge of the company. And the board hires the president or chief executive officer, or and other uh, top officers of the company, uh, and they serve as employees of the board. So the theory is that the shareholders um, are in control because they elect the board and the board hires the president uh, and it's democratic. I'm going to come back to it. It doesn't always w- work out as perfectly as, as you want. But, uh, uh, and uh, Now, there's basically an important distinction between two kinds of corporations. There's for-profit and non-profit. Uh, I'm, I've been describing a for profit corporation, which is the usual variety. Uh, nonprofit corporations uh, will also have a board of directors, but they will not have any shareholders. There's a fundamental difference in <coughs> the charter and the way the government reacts to them. The, the, the nonprofit organization, corporation, is set up to advance some cause, uh, and it is not owned by anyone. Uh, The share price, you could say, is identically zero. Actually, you can't say what the share price is because there are zero shares and they have a zero price. So, the value of the price per share is zero over zero and uh, you can't uh, define it. So, Yale University is a nonprofit corporation. The price of a share in Yale University is undefined. It's zero over zero. Uh, It has a board that runs it, but the board is not liable to shareholder vote. Uh, well, actually, we have some voting among alumni, I guess. Uh, but um, uh, it's not it's not a, a for-profit corporation. So I'm going to be talking about um, for-profit. Now, the uh, the critical um, the critical thing to understand about a corporation is that in order to value a share in a corporation. You absolutely have to know the number of shares outstanding, right? If I own a thousand shares in a company, uh, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything until you know how many shares are outstanding, right? Because uh, if I own a thousand shares and then you look it up and find out how many shares are outstanding, there are a thousand, you say, hey, I own the whole company, it's mine, right? If you own a thousand shares and there are a thousand outstanding. But what if you own a th- thousand shares and there are 10 million outstanding? Well, th- uh, then that means that you own what one uh, ten thousandth of the company, Did I divide right? Uh, and so uh, that's a very important <coughs> lesson to keep in mind. People don't usually know how many shares are outstanding in the company that they invest in. Uh, that's because, in a sense, they're trusting. To analysts. Ultimately, analysts are supposed to keep track of this. When they look at the price of a company, how do we know whether the price at which you're buying is reasonable? Well, they must be looking at some measure of the value of the company and dividing by the number of shares. And then that gives them some idea of what the share is worth. Uh, but it's absolutely essential. So the shares only mean something as, uh, as a relation to their total number of shares. So, companies routinely do what are called splits. Okay? They may do a two-for-one split uh, and that means uh, if you held 1,000 shares, you get a letter saying, congratulations, you now own 2,000 shares. And So, don't be too jubilant because uh, when they do a split, they do it to every single shareholder. Right? So, you now have 2,000 shares, but now there's 20 million shares outstanding in the company, so the ratio is unchanged. So you might ask, well, why do they do splits? Well, it's just uh, to keep the numbers. Uh, It's actually not a very good reason to do splits. There's no reason not to do splits either, uh, because it's just changing the units of measurement. But typically, uh, in the United States, they do splits to keep the price of a share somewhere in the 20 to 40 dollar range. Uh, b- and there's interesting literature on why they do that. Maybe it's a tradition. Uh, maybe it's to keep the value kind of uh, in, a, in a familiar range or a small, they don't want them to get too expensive because uh, people can't aff- small investors can't afford them anymore. Who knows? But it, the point is, it's different in different countries. So, the total number of shares is almost uh, the, 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 the tendency to do splits. Uh, is a cultural thing. It, it's of no real significance. Warren Buffett doesn't do splits uh, with his Berkshire Hathaway, and there are other companies that. Well, I guess Google doesn't do splits, is not it? Right? Is that right? Are you saying no? Actually, I don't remember, I but they haven't done one yet. Yeah. Um, and so, what is the price per share? You know. So, see, so this is getting a little high. Five hundred and fifty. prices. I don't know whose shoes these are. Did someone leave their shoes? <laughs> I should have removed that. Uh, uh, $550 uh, dollars a share is kind of high because most people uh, will buy, this is part of our tradition, most people will buy shares in what's called round lots. That's 100 shares. So, if it's, um, five, uh, if it's 550 that makes uh, uh, 50, $55,000 for one round lot. Did I, say <laughs> I can't multiply <laughs> I'm standing up. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, so they most <coughs> companies do splits because that might close you. You might have been thinking of investing in Google, uh, but you could still invest. You could just say I want to buy ten shares or, or five shares, and the broker will do it for you. But they might charge a higher uh, commission. Um, so, but anyway, that's that's the the, the lesson. So there's a term. Uh, I should write some of my terms down. Very important term. In finance, and that's dilution. Um, if the company increases the number of shares through a split, that is not dilution because it doesn't really mean anything. When you do a split, you're changing the number of shares for everybody, so it can have no effect on the ratio for anybody. So it's just purely appearance. But dilution occurs. When the company changes the number of shares asymmetrically, not changing it for everybody, so um, the typical example of dilution is the board of directors uh, has hired a CEO for the company, and they want to motivate the CEO. Uh, they can pay the CEO a salary, or they can give shares to the CEO. Uh, and that's quite standard uh, because the uh, they feel that that makes the CEO a shareholder. It's like another form of compensation, uh, and that compensation uh, might have different attractiveness. So they'll give the person a package, both a salary and some shares. But you see, if, they, give the, if they, they merely give shares to the CEO without increasing your shares, then you are being diluted because it's raising the total and it's reducing the ratio. Uh, uh, now, if a company sells shares, it issues new share. They can do that at any time. When you start a company, you might have had, like, th- th- uh, you know, maybe when uh, Peter Peterson and uh, Steven Schwartzman founded the Blackstone Group, they gave each of them 500 shares. Could be. I, I'm just making that up. Uh, but obviously, there's going to be more shareholders as as, as time comes in. Uh, one thing that people can do to get in is to buy shares. Uh, if, they, if the company issues new shares by selling them to the public, it's not uh, obviously dilution, right? It, of course, it's lowering your share of the company, but offsetting this is that the company is taking in money from the person who bought the shares. And so it doesn't dilute you. Well, it dilu- you could say it dilutes you, but it, it doesn't lower the price of your. Of your investment, in general, it, uh, it could depending on a lot of factors. But um, uh, so uh, dilution occurs. Uh, no, the term specifically refers to changes in the number of shares that affect adversely existing shareholders. Another common term is a stock dividend. Well, first of all, I should talk about dividends. Sorry. The stock market. Okay, uh, let me see. I was going to talk about stock dividend, but I better talk about dividends first. In for-profit companies, people are investing in the company for profit. Okay, and how do they get the profit? Well, the company, the board of directors, decides when, uh, if and when to pay dividends to the to the uh, shareholders. And then the law of the state would say that they must treat them all equally. So they've made some money, and now they want to take it out and spend it. They have to do it equally to all shareholders, and that's called paying a dividend. Uh, They can do it uh, on rare occasions, or they can do it uh, whenever they feel like it, or they can do it regularly. That's often done quarterly. When I set up a company, Case Schiller Weiss Incorporated, Um, Typical of young startup companies, we didn't pay a dividend. Uh, We gave (coughs) shares to um, uh, almost all of our employees as part of their compensation Uh, and uh, um, we hoped that would motivate them and make them feel part of the company, Uh, but we never paid them a dividend. I remember one time I was talking to our CEO and he said, you know, maybe we should pay at least one dividend (laughs) because our employees are forgetting that they own these shares. And so, so we paid one dividend, uh, and uh, I don't know how much excitement it generated, but that's the thing. Yeah. Um, does this mean that, um, say, if a stock pays out a two-dollar dividend, that at, immediately after paying out the dividend, the share, of the, the price of the share should go down? By yes. Yeah. He's asking after a firm pays a dividend, uh, that should lower the. You're asking whether it should lower the price of a share. And yes, you are absolutely right. Uh, if the company pays out money, the, th- the value of the company should have just gone down by the amount they paid out. But the number of shares hasn't changed. So that means that the price of each share should decline by the amount they paid out divided by the number of shares. Uh, and there's a term for that, uh, they call it going ex dividend. So uh, the company, uh, if you look, it used to be you could look on the. We can still see this. Some of these are still listed on the stock New York Stock Exchange page. On the day that a, a stock goes ex dividend, they'll have a little X by its price, and the reason they put that there is so that people don't get alarmed. So people, a lot of people watch the price of their share every day. Some people get neurotic about it, right? And then suddenly it drops by $2 a share, and they say, Oh my God, I'm worried. <laughs> they call up their broker and say, What's wrong? And then the broker has to explain No, no, didn't you see the X there? It just went X dividend. So it doesn't mean anything. X dividend date is the date. Not the date that you actually receive the dividend, but it's called the X dividend date, which the company uh, decides on that date, anyone who uh, was a stockholder of record. Gets the dividend, and then the guy uh, after that, the, 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 you don't get that dividend, and so uh, that's a, that's an important, uh, uh, and and this really does happen. Stocks really do drop in price on x dividend date. Now, there, uh, now incidentally, that's an interesting question that you bring up because should I pay any attention to dividend dates as an investor? Uh, the answer is generally not. Because uh, if you buy the stock before it goes ex dividend, you get uh, you have to pay a higher price, but you get the (laughs) dividend. If you if you wait till the next day, you pay a lower price, but you don't get the dividend. And unless there are some tax effects, which might matter, and uh, taxes always complicate things, but unless uh, disregarding tax effects, it doesn't matter uh, which uh, which you do. So, in fact, there's a rule, FINRA, which licenses stockbrokers, tells their uh, people, you must not sell dividends. And they're referring to a bad practice that some unscrupulous stockbrokers uh, occasionally do. They'll tell someone, uh, hurry up and buy this stock because it's going to go X dividend. If you buy it today, don't <laughs> if you wait, you won't get the dividend. Uh, uh, that's misleading because it really doesn't matter. When you buy the stock, so that you're not supposed to, as a broker, sell dividends. Um, that doesn't mean dividends don't matter. Ultimately, they're the reason um, why you uh, why you own a stock. Well, this gets back this. Gets back. So, d- so uh, people are accustomed to getting dividend checks in the mail. If you own stocks, we don't get them in the mail anymore because you own it through some brokerage account, and you get a com- you get it on a website. You used to get checks in the mail. Now, you go on a website and you'll see that your dividends are credited to your account. Uh, but money is growing in your account as companies pay out dividends. I was going to talk about a stock dividend. I was starting to do that. Sometimes companies will announce that they are paying not a cash dividend, they're paying a stock dividend. Uh, and they'll say, We are pleased to announce. That we have are paying a dividend uh, in new shares issued today by the company equal to five uh, percent of your existing shares. so it's a five percent dividend. Congratulations. Uh, is that a good thing? How excited should you be to get the letter saying your company has paid you a stock dividend? Any idea on that? Well, you should be absolutely unexcited because it doesn't mean anything right because If they were giving you extra shares and just you alone, that would mean uh, great. That would be good. But the whole essence of a stock dividend is uh, that they're paying it to every shareholder in the same proportion. So every 100 shares becomes 105 shares. So you know that that has no meaning to me, right? Because all that matters is the ratio how many shares I own divided by the number of shares outstanding. So if they both go up by the same proportion, then numerator and denominator go by the same amount, and so there's no there's no change. Uh, so then you might ask, well, why in the world do companies issue stock dividends anyway? What's the point? Uh, are they trying to confuse or fool somebody? Uh, well, there's different views on that. Uh, one of them is yes, they are trying to confuse and fool somebody. If they don't have money to pay the dividend, they can always do a stock dividend. Um, on the other hand, some people say, well, that would backfire, right? If if they're going to pay stock dividends and try to fool us, what's going to happen? The price of a share is going to fall on that day. Right? When you pay a stock dividend, you would think that now there's more shares, everyone divides by the larger number of shares and the value of the company goes down. So it's not going to work to pay a stock dividend. So the, the more enlightened view is corporations only pay a stock dividend when they have some good news to announce. And so typically they'll write a letter saying, Congratulations, we have great news, we have some new breakthrough, and in celebration of this, we're going to pay everyone a 5% stock dividend. Now, uh, they are hoping that the price doesn't fall because they're announcing it with news. And in a sense, issuing the stock dividend is just a way to make it dramatic. Um, okay. Um, now, incidentally, uh, in a for-profit corporation, this—I understand this. This is a concept which is enshrined in law. In a for-profit corporation, the purpose of the entity is defined as profit for the shareholders. Now, in some countries and in some jurisdictions, the law might not be entirely clear on that. They might say there are other stakeholders. Uh, but in the purest form, and this is the form that we have in the United States. The company exists for the shareholders uh, they 're the one there are other people who have contracts with the company, like the employees, but the employees are not shareholders. they are receiving salary or something else, uh, and the important thing for the co- corporation is to live up to any promises it made. It has to live up to its promises. but the purpose of the corporation is the shareholders okay and this is a, a capitalist idea that. Might sometimes sound wrong, Uh, you might say, why should a company exist for the shareholders? Uh, Well, the concept here is that it's a good business model. People do need money and they go into business to make money. And so let's make make it clear that's what the company is going to do. It has to behave in an honorable way for everyone, it has to live up to its contracts, but the company generally doesn't give to charity, it doesn't uh, contribute to political campaigns. It, doesn't do, it shouldn't be, ideally, doing any of those things. It should be trying to get money back to the shareholders. So If you ever serve on a board of directors, this is the thing that I want you to remember because many of you will serve on boards of directors. You, when you sign on to a job on the board, okay, you are signing on to a solemn responsibility and that responsibility, Is to treat all shareholders equally and fairly, and make money for them, and then you're you're not supposed to ever do anything that's, that's not, honest or not living up to contracts. But your purpose has is only one purpose: it's the shareholder. When you serve on a board, you are in a fiduciary role. You are there to protect shareholders, and that's the concept. So it's for profit. And the theory that we have in capitalist countries is that this is a good model. There are nonprofits, fine, but a lot of the stuff that has to be done for an economy is only going to get done through for-profit corporations. Uh, And so let's let's make it clear, let's make it unambiguous. People who are on boards or are managers of these companies, they can give their personal money to charities but they themselves are obligated to make money it's not it's not a vice this is the concept that is in the law and and the reason we have it in the law is that it works to produce prosperity and to produce the things we need like clothes medical service home whatever so that's why we do it and there's no shame in pursuing profits and getting it out to your shareholders now ultimately uh, the purpose of investing in a share is to get the dividends. That's the whole named purpose of the corporation. Uh, so, uh, I might add, though, that there are other ways that I, I, I may have said that too narrowly. Traditionally, you buy stocks to get dividends. That's the reason. Uh, and, and I, but I want to be careful about qualifying that. Uh, first of all, a lot of people don't seem to even grasp that basic point that you buy stocks for the dividends. Uh, a lot of people think, well, I, I will buy stocks. Pe- well why do people buy stocks? Be- they'll buy stocks because they think the price is going to go up and make them a lot of money. They can sell it at an advantage. Right? That's what most people think, right? Do I buy stocks for dividends? Some people don't even know what a dividend is. <laughs> they just think of stock as something whose price goes up. But you know it doesn't make sense to think that the price of anything would go up if it's if that's all there is to it. Why would people pay any price for stocks if there wasn't some way to get money out? So the ultimate thing is the dividends. That the dividends, even though a lot of people forget the dividends uh, and don't realize how uh, important they are, uh, they are actually the driving force. Now I wanted to just show you uh, a plot that you already saw uh, in. uh, if you looked on, on the spreadsheet that I had up, uh, this is the stock market for uh, the United States. It's the Standard & Poor Composite. They, uh, in 1957, they reformulated uh, it and they called it the Standard & Poor 500, uh, but uh, I'm using their long series back to 1871, and so I can't call it uh, the 500. I'm calling it the Composite. Uh, and uh, what this is is the price of uh, a portfolio of shares in U.S. companies. Uh, so it's kind of like the average price of a share uh, adjusted for splits, because uh, you don't you don't want the obviously when they do a two for one split, the price falls in half, and that's meaningless. So you want to correct for splits. So S and P corrects for splits. And follows the price of a share. Now unfortunately, the same companies are not around. Uh, the companies that we had in uh, 1871, hardly any of them are e- even exist anymore. So what they do is they're pricing a portfolio of shares, and w- they keep substituting in new ones. Uh, there's an index committee that keeps bringing in new shares when new companies become important. They try to get the 500 representative of, of the most important companies in the world in the US. And you can see that's what the price has done. Uh, there's also the earnings uh, uh, per share. What are earnings per share? It, it, earnings are something that accountants have generated, and they've been doing it all the way back to 1871. It's a venerable concept. It's how much money did the company make this year, if it's annual earnings, OK? Uh, The price of a a share is the price of the ownership of that earnings stream forever. If I buy a share, I'm in with everyone else who owns the company uh, and I have a claim on the earnings stream, but the earnings stream is a year-by-year thing. It just tells you how well they did in that given year. Uh, So You can see that the, uh, the stock market has been more volatile than the earnings. Uh, and the price of a share is many times higher than the earnings per share, so typically the, the ratio of price to earnings has been about 15. So that means that people will pay up front for about 15 years' earnings, okay? But um, the company, it, okay. Earnings and dividends are different, okay? Earnings. Is the money that the company made in a given year? Okay, how do they know what they made? That's a complicated thing that accountants figure out. All right, and accountants find it difficult to define the earnings of a company, but they do something and they come up with a number. Uh, it may surprise the company uh, directors how much we made or how little we made uh, according to the accountants, but the dividend is something much more concrete. This is what they actually send out. This is cash sent out to shareholders. All right. So earnings is kind of a theoretical concept that accountants work on, and it can go up and down depending on adjustments they make. They might decide that, you know, you've, we've, we we uh, uh, we have some investment over there that we just lost money on. We should take a write-off for that. Uh, and the uh, management might say, Well, what do you mean? We didn't lose any money this year, but the accountants thought we did. So. Uh, that's earnings, but dividends is very concrete. It's what they send out. Um, here is the price earnings ratio uh, for the U.S. stock market from 1881 uh, to the present, uh, and uh, this was also on that spreadsheet that you have on the website. You can see that I'm saying about 15, uh, uh, 15. This is 15, 15 times earnings it's typical. Uh, but we're in a high-price earnings uh, scenario now. It goes up and down depending on the outlook for earnings uh, and maybe other factors. The red line is long-term interest rates, uh, but uh, I won't talk more about that right now. But The earnings is a measure of the value of a company and typically they've been valued at something like 15 times earnings. When the price-earnings ratio gets high, like it did in 1929, people get antsy and they thought, Oh my God! The price-earnings ratio is 35. Uh, again, this is price divided by 10-year earnings, not one-year earnings. That's what I do. So we had an extraordinarily high price-earnings ratio, representing a lot of optimism in the 20s for the stock market, uh, and then it corrected ab- abruptly downward. That was the Great Depression, and we had a similar, even higher price-earnings ratio of about 46 at the peak in 2000, and it corrected way down. So the, the price reflects you really, when you buy a share of a company, you own it forever. You you will be uh, you are entitled to receiving the dividends that are paid out of earnings uh, for the rest of your life, and you can give it to your children, and you know maybe in 200 years from now it'll be worth a lot. Probably not, but it might be. Probably won't even exist in uh, 50 years, but uh, it will be bought by some other company, and it will still have value and will still be going up. Um, so. Uh, that's the price earnings. Now, uh, the earnings, you understand, are a kind of theoretical concept, but dividend is the money that we send out. Uh, and so, how does the company uh, decide on dividends? Well, that's again up to the board to decide, uh, or they can set up a committee uh, on the board that would decide. But ultimately, that's a major decision to, to send out dividends. Uh, and typically, young companies do not send out dividends. Uh, if you 've set up a company, uh, like uh, you don 't want to pay a dividend for a while because you need the money and you 're reinvesting it in the company and people will understand they don 't expect to get their money out of an investment right away. but as a company matures, then they typically feel that uh, it 's a time to pay a dividend the & P 500 is 500 companies who are major companies, so these tend to be mature companies and they tend to be in the uh, dividend-paying stage, so the question then is uh, the payout ratio. Uh, the payout ratio is dividends over earnings, or I say div over e, and I have the payout ratio for the United States. Um, that's the payout ratio. Uh, Going back to 1871, uh, there are some spikes up, uh, like for example in um, that's what year, here. I'm not sure what, what year, that was. 1921 maybe. Now this year, this is 1932 or 33. The companies were paying out 160 percent of their earnings as dividends, and that you might say, well, what, what's going on here? It was the depression, right? So, what was actually happening is the depression was killing these companies they weren 't making any money, uh, but they didn 't want to cut their dividend <laughs> because they were afraid that uh, if they cut the dividend, uh, people would be upset so they 're trying to keep maybe they did cut it but they didn 't cut it too much, so that means that they were paying out more than they were earning that 's what typically happens in these spikes. It was a crisis uh, but now there 's also a trend downward they used to pay out. Uh, typically like 80% of their earnings, but it's been gradually going downward and now it's down to like 40%. A, that's a cultural thing, I would say, but it's, it's that companies now are wanting to keep the money. and It may have to do with the fact that people today uh, don't seem to be as focused on dividends uh, and so that means that uh, companies are more able to reinvest earnings uh, and not uh, pay. This is the dividend price ratio. Uh, back to 1871. Uh, So Back in the late 19th century, uh, the dividend price ratio was typically uh, 5%. Uh, I think it was clearer in those days, uh, in terms of just general investing culture, and and we're behavioral in our attitude, it was clearer that you bought a stock to get a dividend. Stocks were kind of different in those days. They were more like railroads or steel companies and it was just understood. If if someone were recommending you a stock, you'd first say, "What is its dividend?" And if someone said it's four percent, you'd say, "Well, that's kind of meager. You know, I I, I want a better dividend than that." Now, uh, people don't seem to be focused on them. In another sense, they're more willing to entrust the money back to the board of directors to uh, to decide on um, on uh, whether to Whether to pay when and whether to pay dividends. Uh, Now the other thing is there's another other ways to get money out of a company without paying a dividend, and one of them is stock repurchase. Uh, Well, there's also uh, liquidation. Let me mention liquidation of liquidation or sale of company. I'll talk about this. For, uh, a company doesn't ever have to pay a dividend. All it can do is keep piling in the money and accumulating it, and then someone will buy the whole company. And then all of the shareholders will be bought out at a termination date. Uh, uh, that's one way that I, uh, a. Uh, but often when companies are bought out, they, they don't give them cash, they give them shares in the acquiring company. Uh, and so then you would be relying on getting dividends from the acquiring company. Uh, so I don't uh, emphasize this uh, cash sale of a company, but it does happen sometimes. Um, the other thing that a company can do to get money out is share repurchase uh, and uh, stock repurchase or share repurchase. And it's perfectly th- this sometimes surprises people when, until they, when they first think about it, You, as an individual, can call up your broker and say, I want to buy Google shares, right? Uh, But but, uh, Larry Page at Google can call up a broker, he better get the board's permission. Uh, uh, Somebody at Google can call up a broker and make the same statement Uh, We want to buy Google shares. And so you might say, well, how can Google buy Google? Uh, why not? Is the answer. Why shouldn't Google buy Google shares? Um, then you might. Let me ask you this: What would happen if, if Google decided to buy up all of its shares? Okay, could that happen? All right. I'm I, I'm the CEO of uh, Google. And I call the broker <laughs> and I say, "There's how many shares are outstanding?" Like a hundred million or something. No, it wouldn't be a hundred million. We know the price is 500 dollars a share. Well, I could figure it out more or less, but well, the answer is you. Uh, let me put it this way. L- let me see if this will help you understand. Suppose um, uh, uh, Larry Page calls up and says, "I'd like to buy all of the Google shares," and the broker says, "All right, I'll get them for you," um, and then he comes back and says. I managed to get all but 100 shares and there's this one guy, this Yale student, uh, who owns 100 shares <laughs> of Google stock uh, and I'm having trouble getting uh, him to uh, sell. All right, so The broker calls you up and says, Google wants to buy back all of its shares. I'm being silly here. I don't know if, you, if, if I can be silly like this. What do you say to the broker then? Okay, so The broker calls you up and says, you're the last guy, you have the last 100 shares <laughs> in Google. And we and uh, Google wants to buy them, and we'll give you five hundred dollars a share. So what do you say? What? No. Well, yes, you say no. Actually, I have a better thing. You say, uh, call Larry Page and tell him he's fired, <laughs> <laughs> because I realize I own the company, right? If I own the last hundred shares, it's all mine. <laughs> I don't have to take any. I can do whatever I want. The last shareholder. So a company can't buy all of its shares. But it can buy some of its shares, and that's another way to get money out of the company. Um, And so uh, it's a little different. Uh, If they see, if they buy, if they suppose you own 100 shares and they declare a 5% cash dividend, then you get $5. Okay? But what if the company buys back 5% of its shares? Okay? What happens then? Uh, Well. The the company is still paying out money, uh, in the same amount total, uh, but uh, uh, it's coming out in a different form. It's coming out as as a share repurchase. It's it's changing the number of sh- shares outstanding, uh, so the 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 value of the company declines by the same amount. It has to. As if they had just uh, paid a dividend, they're, if they're sending out money, the value of the company has to go down by whatever they sent out. But with share repurchase, the number of shares goes down, and if they don't do share repurchase, the number of shares doesn't go down. So in a sense, it's all the same to me as a shareholder whether they pay uh, dividends or they repurchase shares. Now, I don't know how clear that all was. let me just i uh, write this down. The names, this, has, this idea has a name. Uh, two authors, both who won the Nobel Prize in finance. Franco, and I know I was his advisee in my Ph.D., so I learned how to pronounce his name, uh, Modigliani, uh, because in Italian you don't pronounce the G, although I tend to say Modigliani, just to be understood. Uh, and uh, Merton Miller. Uh, Modiani is one of the authors of your textbook, uh, uh, along with Fabozzi. Uh Modiani and Miller wrote a famous article arguing that uh, what I just said, I, I just try to say it in very intuitive terms, that, uh, well, they said it, dividend policy. is irrelevant, although they do put in a, uh, a qualifier that it could matter for tax reasons. In fact, you have to put that qualifier on just about anything you say in finance because the tax system is infinitely complex and every country has different taxes. States, Different states have different taxes. There's nothing you can say uh, boldly in finance if you <laughs> allow taxes, but let's just disregard taxes. Uh, when 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 Modiano, this sounds like a very strong proposition about dividend <laughs> irrelevance. Um, and um, what they are saying is that, of course, a lot of things that a board of directors decides to do is not irrelevant. It's highly relevant to the future of the company. But real things matter. Like if the company decides to build that new plant in Akron. That matters for the company. I mean, because if the plant works out to be a success, then the company will do well, and they're spending money on on concrete and bricks and machinery, and uh, they could be doing that wisely or unwisely, and that's beyond finance to evaluate. But what Modigliani and Miller said, if if it's pure dividend policy, then it is totally irrelevant. It means nothing. So companies can do whatever they please. I don't care. And you as a stockholder, I don't care what they do. And the reason Moriani and Miller said that is they were thinking that if the dividend policy is going to be changed without changing any of the activities of the firm that is keeping it a purely financial change, then it must be that they're switching from dividends to stock repurchase, or stock repurchase to dividends. Because you see, you can keep the operations the same. Whether or not you pay a dividend, if if, if choosing not to pay a dividend means substituting stock repurchase for dividend, so um, I'm going to build that plant in Akron whether I pay a dividend or not because uh, uh, if I need to cut my dividend in order to get the money to uh, 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 to build the plant, uh, I would also be cutting my stock repurchase. Or one way or the other, it doesn't. It all comes out to the same thing. Let me put it in the simplest way. I think the simplest way to understand Modigliani Miller proposition is the following. Imagine that we, as a board, decided to pay a dividend of five dollars a share. Okay, and let's talk in the old days about sending checks out. All right, Uh, we're going to send a letter to all our shareholders and say we have decided to pay five dollar dividend. Okay. And so you're about to approve this at the meeting. We we approve a letter. The letter is going to say we're making money. Here's your dividend check. And then someone says, "Hey, why don't we just change it? Why don't we say same five-dollar check is included, but let's in the letter let's say something different. Let's say this is a repurchase of uh, of some of your shares at market price. Saying the same check, right? Uh, And so what's the difference? Uh, well, you, I'll ask you, what difference does it make? Suppose you get a letter from your company saying, Congratulations, here's a $5 dividend, and here's a check for $5 if, you're, if you own one share. Or the company says, Congratulations, we're repurchasing uh, 2% of your shares, uh, and, uh, and here's a check for $5 to pay you for those shares. Okay? And by the way, we're doing that with all shares. Well, if you think about it, it doesn't make any difference to me, right? If it doesn't matter what that letter says. I can crumple it up and throw it in the wastebasket. I don't. I want the five-dollar check. If they're paying me by sending money and calling it a dividend, it's the same as if they say they're repurchasing my shares. Because it's repurchasing my shares, if they do it for everybody, it doesn't mean anything, right? I'm getting. Uh, we're all lowering. The, all of our shares are going down by the same amount. So that's the basic insight in uh, Modigliani and Miller. That um, that share repurchase and dividend are really interchangeable. It's just all a conceptual difference. So uh, this kind of took people by surprise. It's kind of it should be obvious. I'm making it so simple. I could write some mathematics to try and, but I think it's so simple and obvious that uh, uh, you just have to keep remembering that all that matters for a company, for you as a your interest in a company, depends on. Your share is divided by the total number of shares, and a stock repurchase—if they repurchase everybody's shares the same proportion—it doesn't affect that ratio. So you don't care what the letter says, whether it says uh, dividend or stock repurchase. Okay. So why would a company want to do one or the other? Well, Modigliani and Miller are leaving the room. They say uh, it doesn't matter. If you ask them uh, why a dividend payout policy has changed. Ah, there's a famous uh, Miller quote. He calls it a neutral mutation, as uh, in e- in, a reference to evolutionary biology. That sometimes mutations are neither advantageous nor deleterious, and so uh, the the genome starts piling on mutations that mean nothing. Uh, that's how they date uh, uh, branches of the uh, genome by looking at the number of neutral mutations. And he said, "All this, this thing that I have up here well, the previous slide, showing the dividend uh, earnings ratio. it's just cultural, it means nothing, um, because uh, uh, to some extent, what's not shown in that diagram is the stock repurchase. Um, now I wanted then finally to talk about modigliani Miller and debt. Now, I didn't talk too much about debt yet, but um, Oh, before I, ta- I just want to say one more thing about Modigliani-Miller dividend uh, irrelevance of dividends. There is a possible correction to be made due to taxes. When Modigliani and Miller wrote, there was a differential tax rate between dividends and capital gains, and so uh, it was. Modigliani and Miller said back then. This was uh, like 30 or 40 years ago. That companies should really not pay dividends because dividends were then taxed at a higher rate than capital gains. And so you don't want to give your, your shareholders taxes. You, you should, in your fiduciary duties as a board member, be trying to help them lower their taxes. It doesn't say that in the state law, but it, that would be in, in, inferred as the, uh, as the duty. So you'd, you would avoid paying dividends, uh, and, uh, and therefore switch to share repurchase as your method. This it took decades for Modigliani and Miller to kind of sink in, but uh, as you can see, part of the reason why the dividend uh, earnings ratio, especially in more recent years since 1990, has been declining is corporations were trying to somewhat ease the tax burden on their shareholders. By doing repurchase instead of dividend. Um, however, that all changed in 2003 with the Jobs and Growth Tax Reconciliation Act of 2003, which cut the rate of taxation of dividends to 15 percent, the same rate that capital gains are taxed. So there is now no preference, and it, well, there could be. There's a lot of complexities in the tax law, but basically. Uh, Dividend policy really is irrelevant now because if, we, if, if there's no tax advantage to one over the other, it is completely neutral. The, um, the other thing that I wanted to say about um, Modigliani and Miller is about corporate debt. Uh, and um, so uh, I guess I have to bring one of these. So I've I, I talked about a company as having only shares outstanding, but they also have debt outstanding. Okay, so a company can borrow money. Uh, if a company borrows a lot of money, it's called it's be called leveraged, uh, and its leverage is measured by the debt equity ratio. Now, D here stands for debt. A, a minute ago. I was using div, D-I-V, to stand for dividends. They both start with the letter D, okay? but they're d- very different concepts. The debt of a company is the amount of money it owes either to banks or to bondholders or to note holders or commercial paper holders. These are, are fixed incomes. In other words, they are not shares in the company. When a company becomes leveraged, uh, it uh, it then becomes riskier. the company becomes riskier because uh, the earnings they have available uh, after paying of interest on the debt or repayment of principal of the debt uh, is what they have available for dividends and if Debt becomes high relative to their revenue stream, then they, the company is is in a riskier situation. Uh, so there's another Modigliani Miller theorem about debt, uh, which is about debt irrelevance as well. That's a uh, that sounds funny, but uh, in a sense that is we have to define the sense in which it's irrelevant. Uh, it certainly isn't irrelevant to the price of a share. The more money a company borrows, uh, the more risky the share becomes uh, and so uh, it's just like if you if, if you buy a house uh, and um, you buy a uh, A lot of people are very leveraged now. They might put uh, only 10 percent down on a house. So you buy a house for (coughs) three hundred thousand dollars, and you put thirty thousand dollars down. Okay, that's a sort of investment of thirty thousand dollars, but it's highly risky because you are very leveraged when you only put 10 percent down. uh, Because suppose (coughs) the home price falls by only 10 percent. That could, in fact, that's what's been happening lately. Your $30,000 down payment is completely wiped out, right? Because you were leveraged. You bought the house for $300,000, you sell it for $270,000. Uh, that's exactly what uh, you owe, so you have nothing left. All right? So leverage brings risk. Th- th- so boards of directors have long <coughs> agonized over how much to borrow. Uh, and uh, different companies seem to have different cultures. Uh, so, for example, Microsoft uh, has uh, avoided borrowing any money, uh, and they uh, they uh, don't believe in debt, and so they are not leveraged. Uh, but other companies get heavily indebted, and then they they can go through big problems. Uh, so uh, it's a it's a very common item of discussion at board meetings about how much should our company borrow, all right? And so they seek advice from financial experts. Uh, so they call in Modigliani and Miller and ask, uh, how much should we borrow? What do finance theorists say? Uh, and in the extreme case where we disregard taxes and uh, we. Have to disregard some other problems. We get the same answer. Uh, Modiani and Miller says we don't care what you do. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Uh, and so there, uh, this this is what I want you to think about on the problem set, the, 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 and maybe thinking about the answer to the questions on the problem set number four will uh, help you to think this through. But the simplest way to see Modiani Miller debt irrelevance is the following. What is a, a company if you wanted to b- buy a company, you could buy only the, st- the shares, or, or, or equity. incident that I ever, equity equals shares or, uh, or stock. So uh, when I talk about debt equity ratio, I'm talking about the ratio of the value of the company's debt to the value of all of its stock, OK? Um, so, um, if you wanted to buy a company up and own it yourself completely, you could conceive of buying all the shares in the company. Right? There's a 10 million shares outstanding. I'm going to buy 10 million shares. But in a sense, I don't really own the whole company yet because the company owes money. So, what if I wanted to buy the whole kit and caboodle, the whole operation? I should be buying all the equity. And all the debt as well, right? So if the company issued bond, if I really want to own it, and I have no, you know, I really want to be the tycoon who this is my baby, and nobody else uh, can get in my backyard. Uh, I I can do whatever I want. You'd have to buy all the equity and all the debt, right? And uh, otherwise, if you don't buy all the debt, you still have problem because those debtors can go after you because they are they're not shareholders, but they have rights. And they could come in and say, "We don't like what you're doing. We're going to sue you because we think that you're doing something contrary to our interests as debtors." So if you really want to buy the company, you buy up all its equity, all of its shares and all of its debt. So the basic insight about uh, uh, Mordiani and Miller debt irrelevance is that uh, in the absence of taxes, or any other special thing, the, the real value of the company is going to be unaffected by whether they finance by debt or by equity because the real value of a company is determined by the cash flow that they generate by the business they're doing and so they they are selling widgets or whatever and making money the value of the company is the present value of that cash flow and if you want to buy the company you have to buy up all the debt and all the equity all right so, from the standpoint of a buyer of the whole company, what do I care how the ownership of the company is divided up between debt and equity? I have to buy them all anyway, so uh, I don't care whether three quarters of my money goes to deque- debt or one quarter of the money goes to debt. I just want to know the bottom line how much do I have to pay for the whole company? So, the debt irrelevance theory says that. Uh, it matters for the price of a share what a company uh, issues, uh, how much it debt it takes on, but it doesn't matter for the value of the company. Uh, and so uh, there's a, almost an arithmetic relationship theory that they put forth. I'm not going to go through their numbers, but uh, but the value of the company as a whole is really determined by something outside of finance. So. Um, um, th- again, we have to qualify the debt irrelevant for ta- irrelevance for taxes, um, and uh, and so c- uh, companies um, uh, might uh, um, they might be concerned with uh, the fact that debt is tax deductible for corporations on their. Corporate profits tax, uh, uh, but uh, dividends are not. So, uh, according to Modigliani and Miller, if you add taxes to their debt irrelevance proposition, it means that companies will want to borrow a lot, and that the real advice they would be giving to Bill Gates is, uh, "What's the matter with you? Why aren't you borrowing money? It's tax deductible." And uh, whereas uh, uh, dividends are not, and so that would mean that companies w- should try to push their debt-equity ratio up as high as possible, um, given that uh, uh, that theory. On the other hand, um, if they do so, they may be courting bankruptcy. If a company gets too leveraged, then there's too high a probability that the company will fail. And, uh, and there's costs to bankruptcy. So the other qualification is bankruptcy costs. And so a company, uh, according to Muriani and Miller, has to weigh their tax considerations against their bankruptcy costs and get an optimal uh, debt equity ratio out of that. So it it is some insights that Modigliani and Miller are offering to corporations that I think they often don't see—that the real issue in the dividend, uh, both the dividend and the debt policies, are really taxes uh, and nothing else. Um, The last thing I just wanted to uh, say—I wanted to mention the um, uh, the uh, theory of um, of. uh, Dividend payout given by uh, John Lintner. uh, And it's called the Lintner model of dividends. So I'm saying that uh, unless tax considerations intervene, dividend policy is really irrelevant for a firm. Uh, So, what, and so um, maybe Merton Miller is right, these things are neutral mutations and changes in dividend policy. Are meaningless. But how do they actually do it? Uh, how, do, how do boards and their committees decide how much to pay out in dividends? So, John Lintner was a uh, professor at the Harvard Business School who, decades ago, uh, did a, a survey of, of people who decide on dividends and asked them what goes on in your mind and what do you think about when you decide on dividends. Uh, and he had a long uh, discussion of, they said millions of different things. It's very hard. People who decide on dividends uh, are facing a complicated issue. But one thing that Merton Miller distilled from it was that people on boards who decide on dividend payout are very focused on the price of a share, and they're worried about investor reaction. Uh, Boards always want to keep their price of a share up because if it starts to decline, the company could become a takeover target. It's viewed as a failure, etc., etc. So they they talked a lot to him about investor psychology. And so, in a sense, uh, I'm terminating this lecture with a another triumph for behavioral economics. When we think about the theory of dividend uh, or debt, we end up with irrelevance. It doesn't mean anything but the company's boards talk about it incessantly and it seems to matter a lot to them. And uh, If you ask them why it matters, they say, well, it's pretty obvious. It's all their investor psychology that we have to deal with. And They say things like this. If we we pay a dividend, then they're going to start expecting that and if we don't pay a dividend once, then they're going to say, what's wrong? As long as we never start paying a dividend, then we're just a young company and nobody asks any questions. Then we start paying a dividend. And then, uh, if we ever have to cut it, we're in big trouble. The newspaper reporters will start calling. Why did you cut the dividend? And you said, "You didn't call us up when we weren't paying any dividend, and now we're still paying more than we used to. Why why all this alarm?" And so they said, "One of the lessons they were told is never cut a dividend unless you do it as a you could do a one-time only dividend. Say we're just doing this once and don't expect it again. But if you start paying regular dividends." Then you better keep doing them, or people are going to conclude something is really wrong. So they told him that if earnings go up, we, we try to keep a, a, a target payout ratio. But if earnings suddenly shoot up, we're not going to increase our dividends right away because that would set too high an expectation, and we don't want to have to cut it. So if earnings go up a lot, we will raise our dividends, but only part of the way up. And so the um, the model that um, well, I better. Um, uh, the, get, it, get it right. The Lintner model uh, says that uh, uh, there's a target payout ratio. Uh, ta- that's the Greek letter tau, and that's the target payout ratio. Uh, that ratio may have been higher in the 19th century. It's gradually trending down, but it's a slowly moving thing. So they want to pay out something like 40% of their uh, earnings as dividends and plow the rest back into. Investing inside the company, uh, and then there's another parameter, rho, which is the adjustment. Uh, so, uh, and rho is between zero and one. It's how far, how fast they adjust uh, to the target. And so the Lintner model then says the change in dividends, dividend at time t minus dividend at time t minus one. Uh, is equal uh, to rho times earnings at time t minus dividend t minus 1. Okay? So that means that uh, if your er- rho is some positive number like a half, uh, and so if earnings is above dividends, you increase your dividends, but only by half As much as would bring it up to the target, if rho is a half, Uh, and so that means there's and then there's a gradual adjustment of earnings, of dividends to earnings. So, for example, uh, I don't have any more space to write. (laughs) If uh, if uh, this is time and this is earnings, if your earnings were say flat and suddenly increased like that. They wouldn't believe this increase at first, so the board would decide to adjust only, say, halfway up. Uh, now, I'm plotting dividends. The dividends were down here at half the earnings and then you would gradually adjust them up to half earnings again. That's because they don't want to ever be caught cutting their dividends. Uh, and Also, if the earnings drop, they don't want to suddenly do a crash cut in their dividends either, so they're always sluggishly adjusting. Towards the target payout rate, Uh, and uh, Lintner showed that this simple model, the the Lintner model, explains uh, uh, the behavior of companies pretty well. Okay, so uh, next uh, session uh, is Friday, with Steven Schwartzman, uh, and I'll see you then.